Well, good evening, everyone. Our topic is Prophecy's End Time Lamb. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, Lord, in loving kindness, You are wooing us and You are drawing us to Yourself. Your desire is that we would have a living connection with You. And of course, Lord, You put that desire within our hearts as well or we wouldn't be here tonight. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that as we are diving into Bible prophecy, that You will speak to our hearts. Lord, our expectation is that Your angels are here ministering to us tonight, and we pray that they would uh, speak directly to each of us and, and, and everything that You know that we need, and Lord, that You would speak to our heart, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on this place, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and You would help us to understand the truth, Lord, and You would show us what You would have us do, and then, Lord, You would empower us and enable us to do Your will. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. When you study Bible prophecy, and specifically when you get into end-time prophecy in the book of Revelation, we often have a tendency to focus on the symbols. We want to know who the beast is. We want to know who the dragon is. We want to know what the mark of the beast is and how we can avoid that. We want to know who the false prophet is. And those are good things to know. But when we focus on those things, there may be an, at least the potential that we could become fearful about the future. And we may, because of that, then have a tendency to want to shy away from the study of Bible prophecy. And the things that are mentioned in end time prophecy are certainly designed to capture our attention, aren't they? And as we understand them, and as we come to the Lord, we appreciate that, but there's one thing that God is not doing, and that is He's not trying to instill fear in our hearts. There is nothing that God shares with us that should be fearful if the love of God is in our hearts, because the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Well, Revelation reveals God's last day message to us. And yes, it does use beasts and symbols to reveal the events that are going to be happening in our day, but end time prophecy does so much more than that. Prophecy reveals the truth that God is already been triumphant. Bible prophecy reveals that in the end, God is going to be triumphant. It reminds us that God always has the last word. 
And it shows us that Jesus Christ has already gained the victory for us through His life, death, and resurrection. And it also reveals to us that God is good. In this great controversy between good and evil, God is proven to be good. And it also reveals to us that God not only has the power to forgive your sins, but He has the power to get you to live a life without sin. And so He transforms us so that we will stop sinning and we can have victory over this sin even in this world. And then there's another thing that prophecy reveals. And that is that God always sends a message to prepare His people for major worldwide events which affect their eternal security. What we see in Bible prophecy is a pattern. And that pattern is that God always warns His people before His judgments begin to fall. Amen? His warnings are also mingled with love and mercy. And He is always trying to give us the opportunity to turn our hearts over to Him if we are willing. A loving God invites men and women to be saved before the coming calamity. It is His desire that all would be saved. Let me give you an example of this. In the days of Noah, God sent a message to prepare men and women for the destruction that was soon to come upon the world by the flood. He longed for His people to be saved. He desired that every single person would be saved. No one would be destroyed by the flood. And God, loving humanity so much, allowed Noah to preach for 120 years. That was 120 years of mercy. That was 120 years of grace. 120 years of loving appeals, a message of mercy and warning always precedes major biblical events. It was only after the inhabitants of Noah's day rejected the message of mercy that the flood came. The same thing is true in the New Testament when God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus' first coming. It would be totally surprising to us then if seeing this pattern of God sending a warning before major biblical events, if He didn't send us a message before the second coming of Jesus, wouldn't it? It would be totally out of character. And all through history, God has sent a message to prepare His people before any great earth-shaking events. And once again, we will see, filling the pattern, that God has a very special message to prepare His people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
All through the Bible, we see that pattern. In fact, even in small things, you can see how he sent Joseph to Egypt to prepare for seven years of famine so that he could save his people. And so there's a pattern there that we want to focus on. And so there is this urgent end time message in the book of Revelation which is of eternal significance and we want to look at that tonight. This message is just as vital as the message was in Noah's day, just as vital as it was in John the Baptist's day. And so let's read that end time message. It begins in Revelation 14 verse 6. And it says, Then I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And so here we see this last day message that is pictured as being carried by these angels in the midst of heaven. It is an urgent message. And so even though these are not literal angels flying in the air, we get this sense from this symbology that this is a very important message. This is a very urgent message. This is a message that is being carried rapidly, quickly to the ends of the earth. It is a universal message that goes to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And this message is vital for us to understand as we are preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say to you, brothers and sisters, there is no more important message for our time than these three angel messages that we're going to look at tonight. So what event does this message prepare all of humanity for? You can go down at the end of those three angels' message and you can read in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16, that event. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle to the earth, and the earth was reaped. So we see that these three angel messages are a prelude, a preparation to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he's coming to do something here which is symbolized by an agricultural symbology and that is that he is going to reap a harvest of the earth and so what is the meaning of Revelation's symbol of the harvest you'll remember that the other night that we looked at that parable that Jesus gave of the sower who went out to sow And he said that he sowed good seed and the wheat began to grow, but then they noticed that there were tares or weeds in with it and and the workers came and said, what's happened? I thought you sowed good seed. And he said, an enemy has done this. And if you go to the end of, of Matthew chapter 13, you'll see that Jesus 
then later on the disciples came to him and asked him the meaning of that parable and he said this in verse 39 the enemy who sowed them is the devil the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels and so here we see that this idea of harvest is when Jesus Christ comes to this earth to take his faithful people back home to be with him. And the book of Revelation describes this second coming of Christ with symbolism of Jesus coming to reap earth's final harvest. And so the message of the three angels is to prepare men and women in in earth's last hour to prepare us for this glorious, this spectacular return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. A new day is going to dawn. Christ is going to return to this earth and the heavens will be illuminated with the glory of God. The reign of sin is going to come to an end. Christ is going to come and take His people home But before he returns to this earth, he sends this very important message, a vital message to prepare his people for his coming. And here it is, Revelation 14, 6. Let's read it again. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel. And so Revelation's message is the message of the gospel. And gospel simply means good news, right? And the good news is that through Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. Our guilt can be taken away. The condemnation can be over. The accusing voices silenced. The gospel is the good news that can... Take us from the grip of sin, and that sin in our lives can be broken. Amen? Amen. The chains that bind us can be severed. The prisons that have held us captive can be opened. Through Jesus Christ tonight, friends, you can be set free. The Apostle Paul describes the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4 this way. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so the everlasting gospel, first of all, is that Christ died for our sins. The gospel centers on the death of Jesus Christ. The hope of all humanity is anchored in the cross of Christ. Notice in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 it says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, there is no greater love in the universe than the unselfish love of God. He gave Himself for us. His sacrifice 
on the cross is in our place. He is our substitute. There is no one except the Creator of the universe that could take your sins upon Himself. Let me ask you a question. What is more valuable? A hundred computers or the person that made them? We know that it's the person that made them, right? Because if something happened to those computers, they could remake them, they could fix them, or they could make new ones. And Jesus Christ is infinitely more valuable than all of us. So He is the one who is able to take your sin upon Himself. There is no one else in the universe that has the strength to carry our sins upon their shoulders. Our faith depends on what Christ did for us, not what we do for ourselves. And so through the cross, our salvation, our forgiveness, our mercy is from God. There is no other way that the human race can be saved. There is nothing that you can do to commend yourself to God. There is nothing that you can do to get rid of your sin on your own. We are dependent upon God to do what He says He can do. That He can save us. And the most popular Scripture of all of the Bible tells us, that's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And so the everlasting gospel is that God can save you. And a- another part of that everlasting gospel is that Christ lived a perfect life. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Jesus Christ not only died for you, but He lives for you as well. And He lives to intercede for you. Often you hear people speaking about the death of Christ and His work that He did on the cross for us as being a complete atonement. And it's true that that portion of atonement was complete. But He is still working on our behalf. He still lives today. And He lived a perfect life. And because He lived a perfect life, when God looks at you, if you have given your heart to Him, asked Him to be your Lord and Savior, now He comes into your heart, into your life, and now when God the Father looks at you, He doesn't see your sin, but rather He sees the righteousness of His Son. He was perfect. You are imperfect. You are unrighteous. But He is righteous. And His righteousness can cover you if you have accepted His payment for you. Jesus took what we deserve, that is death, and He gave us what He deserved. That's eternal life. The everlasting Gospel also includes the truth that Christ rose from the dead. 
death could not hold him. And so he not only died for you, but he rose from the dead and he lives for you. You can come to him and you can bring all of your heart's longings. You can bring all of your desires. You can bring all of your weaknesses and your diseases and your sins. And we can bring him all of our troubles and he is alive. He can take those burdens from us. And He can do a major work in our lives. The everlasting Gospel also tells us that Christ ascended to the Father. You know, the political leaders of the world all die. We've talked about some of them already. Nebuchadnezzar died. Caesar died. Napoleon died. You see, the difference between Jesus Christ and all rulers of the world is that all of their graves are filled with dead men's bones. But His grave is empty. Amen? He is risen from the dead. He is alive. And He ascended to the Father 2,000 years ago And He is standing before the throne of God interceding on your behalf. And He knows your name. He knows the things that you are dealing with and what your needs are. He longs to hear your prayers. And His greatest desire is for you to be a part of His kingdom. I want you to notice what Jesus says in one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture today. John eleven twenty five. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in Me, though he may die, yet he shall live. He is the resurrection and the life. And even though Jesus died, He is alive today. I want you to think about that for a minute because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus died your death for you, that means it was an eternal death. There is no coming back from it. So how is it that Jesus could go into the grave having all of the sins of the world of every man, woman, and child that would ever live on earth and yet He was able to come out of the grave? There's only one way and that is that His righteousness is far superior than all of our sins. He is much more valuable than all of His creation. And it's just that His righteousness is so pure, is so perfect, that He can cover all of our sins if we will come to Him in faith. And faith is simply just trusting that God can do what He says He can do. It is a simple trust to the promises of God that He can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's why we've adopted this theme in our series. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it contradicts the Bible, it's not for me. I'm throwing it out. Notice this. If Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He is more than human. He is divine. If Christ was resurrected from the dead, He has power over the grave. 
If Jesus is really divine, His offer of eternal life is real. If Jesus is really divine, then He can change our lives. Resurrection power can transform us. Amen? Deep within our hearts we ask, how can I find peace? How can I be free from the guilt of sin? How can bad habits be changed? How can sin be overcome? And the answer is the everlasting Gospel. Jesus is the answer. He forgives. He still is in the business of changing lives. His grace has power over sin and the grave. And the, the, the Bible says that the Gospel will be preached in all the world before Jesus comes. Every individual is going to have the opportunity to respond to the claims of God's love. And that begins with us tonight. We can make that choice, make that decision to make sure that we are right with God. Revelation's urgent end-time message is pictured in symbology as these three angels flying in the midst of heaven with an appeal to the entire world to accept the everlasting gospel. It is an urgent call to do three things. Number one, it is a call to obey God. You know, friends, obedience is a neglected truth even among Christians today. There are far too many Christians that are emphasizing free grace and paying no attention to the importance of obeying God's commandments. Today, there are people that are trying to say that the commandments are no longer applicable. They have been done away with. That we are under grace and not under the law. And they don't realize that what that statement means is that we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Revelation 14 verse 7 says, Fear God. And give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, first of all, to fear God does not mean that we are afraid of God. But what it means is that we have a healthy respect for God. And we show that healthy respect by obeying Him. Friends, obedience is the greatest act of worship that there is. The Bible says you worship the one you obey. And Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love Me, keep My commandments. And so to show a healthy fear of God means that we respect Him enough, we trust Him enough, we love Him enough that we obey Him. It is the greatest act of worship that there is. Notice Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Solomon, who is called by God to be the wisest man would ever live, 
And he says, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. You want to know what's important for life? This is it. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. In an age of waning morality, God is calling us back to obedience to His law. He is calling us to keep His commandments. Revelation 14 describes God's end-time people this way in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Friends, only those whose hearts have been transformed by God can obey Him in these last days. Without Christ in the heart, we are enemies of God. We are in rebellion against God. But with Him in our hearts, in our lives, with Him being present in our lives, we can live the way that He has called us to live. And we are called to keep His commandments. And when it says in here that those in the last days that are God's people are keeping His commandments, the implication is that they are keeping all of them. Revelation 14.7 goes on to say, Fear God and do what? Give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment is come. So God's last day message is a call for us to fear God, a healthy respect for God, and we show that by obeying His commandments. And second, it is a call to give glory to God in the context of earth's final judgment hour. And so the path to giving glory to God is first to give Him our heart. So what else does it mean to give glory to God? To give glory to God means to honor Him in our lifestyle choices. Let me say that again. To bring glory to God means to honor Him in our lifestyle choices. God's last day message is calling for us to honor God in how we treat our bodies. This includes what we eat, what we drink, and what we do. It includes every aspect of our lives being surrendered to God. That includes what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what we listen to, what we watch, the people that we hang out with. Are we bringing honor to God in our everyday lives and in our bodies? That's what we are called to do. And when we do that, that's when we find the greatest happiness and the greatest joy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so here we see that our bodies are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And so they belong to God. And if Christ is in you, then your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God in you. And when Jesus lives in you, He lives out His life through you. And if He is living out His life through you, then it is going to be very difficult for you to abuse your body with drugs and alcohol and those sort of things when He is living in you. If you are continually surrendering your will to Him, you are going to find it to be very miserable. And so we have discovered here in this first angel's message the things that we are supposed to be doing as Christians who have accepted the gospel message and are saved by the grace of God, we are hearing God in these last day message to lovingly obey Him and give glory to Him in everything that we do. That's what it means to fear Him, to respect Him. It is also an appeal that we give glory to Him in every aspect of our lives. And as we continue reading Revelation 14.7, it says, And do what? Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the seas, and the springs of water. So who is this message calling us to worship? It's calling us to worship the Creator. That's right. The Creator of heaven and earth. And so here is an urgent message to everyone on this planet in the last days of earth's history to come back to worshiping God as the Creator. In an age of evolution when millions have dismissed the idea of a Creator God, Revelation 14 says to worship Him who made heaven and earth. From the smallest atom to the largest galaxy, all nature calls for us to worship our loving Creator. Friends, the universe is vast. It is so advanced that it is hard to imagine that it would come about without a Creator. Every day new discoveries are being made in nature and in outer space that reveal a divine Creator. Friends, your life is not by chance. You are not here by accident. And yet there are many people who refuse to believe in God and say that there is no God. And as we look at creation, we can see that there are many parts of creation that are broken down because sin has impacted our world. Think about this for a minute. You have 6,000 years of sin in your heredity. Things are breaking down. And yet still, 
There are many things today that are beautiful, that are alive, and testify to the creative power of God. When we look at creation, we can sense the power that it took to create things. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we look at creation and we see how powerful God is, and then we realize that He has that kind of power to recreate you into His image. The very basis of worship is the fact that God created us. From the dust of the earth, God formed man. And He breathed into His nostrils the living power, the breath of God, and He became a living soul. God alone creates life. And that's why the book of Revelation in these last days calls us to worship the Creator who made heaven and earth. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. And so this final conflict between good and evil in these last days focuses on the issue of worship and specifically who are we going to worship? Are we going to worship the Creator God who made heaven and earth? Or are we going to worship the beast, this religious system called the beast? Which one are we going to worship? And God is calling us back to accept God's sign of loyalty rather than taking the mark of the beast. And we're going to talk more about that in coming nights. The gospel message also is calling us then to worship God as the Creator. Revelation's final message calls us back to worshiping Him. Because sometimes we forget that and we start thinking that, uh, you know, we bring about our own breath. But it is God who is the source of life. And He provides the very breath that we breathe. And so through the message of the first angel, we discover what we as Christians in this last day are supposed to be doing. We are to be obeying God and giving glory to Him in our lifestyle. We have also discovered why we are supposed to do it. And that's because He is the Creator. We worship Him because He made us. He is worthy of honor and glory and majesty. And now we want to discover why this message is critically important to those of us who are living in the last days of earth's history. Revelation 14.7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him for what? The hour of His judgment has come. I want you to notice that this final message does not say the hour of His judgment is coming. It says that it has come. 
And so I ask you the question, could it be that we are living in that judgment hour? Could it be that the destinies of all humanity are soon to be settled by the choices that we are making every single day? Before the coming of Jesus, this means, before Jesus comes back, this final judgment must take place to determine who receives the reward of the righteous and who receives the reward of the unrighteous. In other words, the book of Revelation is a book of eternal choices. Notice that Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my what? My reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus is coming back to this earth, and He is going to give you your reward, either the reward of eternal life or the reward of eternal death, then does that mean that that judgment has to happen before He comes? And the answer is yes. Or else how does He know who to give eternal life to and give eternal death to? And we might say, but hold on a minute, Pastor. Doesn't God know everything? God doesn't need a judgment to know who is righteous and who's not. So, What is the judgment for? And I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to imagine that you are one of the angels in heaven. Can you put yourself in their place for a moment? And you are one of those angels and you saw the deceit of Lucifer. You saw the lies of Lucifer. You saw him sin against God and he had to be kicked out of heaven. And now God is saying, yeah, I kicked Lucifer out of heaven, but now I'm going to let man who also sinned against me into heaven. And so the judgment is not so much for God to know who is righteous and unrighteous, but rather it's for all of the angels in heaven to know that God is doing the right thing. Because if God lets sin back into heaven, we're going to have the problem all over again, right? And so they want to be absolutely certain that sin is not going to rise up a second time. And so Daniel chapter 7 tells us that thrones were set in place that the court was seated, the books were open, and there were thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 of angels who were there looking over the books. And so as this judgment is going on, God is there with them showing them the judgments that He has made. You see, God could just say, well, I'm going to let man in heaven and I'm going to let this one in, but not that one, and you just need to trust me. God could do that, but God doesn't. God doesn't do anything in a vacuum. He opens up the books and He allows all of the universe to see the judgments that He is making so that everyone can see that what God is doing is absolutely right. 
And so, how does God know who to give eternal life to and eternal death? That decision has already been made. The angels have already been shown. And then He comes back to reap the harvest of the earth. And so God is calling you and me to a decision. No one can be on the fence because the devil owns the fence. And so God is calling each one of us to make a decision for or against Him. And Revelation chapter 16, verse 7 says, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are Your judgments. Here we see when that judgment is finished that the angels are all going to be saying, Yep, God, You're right. This one can come in. That one shouldn't. And they are going to see that. Because you know what? God never makes a mistake. Earthly courts make mistakes. Earthly judges make mistakes. Earthly juries make mistakes. But God never makes a mistake. His judgments are true and righteous, but God is revealing all of that to the angels in heaven. He doesn't do anything in a vacuum. He allows the angels to see that His judgments are right. Revelation reveals then that every human being living at the end of time right before the coming of Jesus, that every single person before Jesus comes is going to have already made a decision for or against Christ. You want to know how we know that? Because Revelation 22.11 tells us that when that judgment in heaven is done and Jesus is getting ready to come back to this earth, He's going to stand up And He's going to say, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Friends, there is no reason that if we are in Christ that we have anything to be afraid of. Because Jesus Christ is in heaven right now as your advocate. And if you have Him in your heart and you are living in Christ, He is your defense attorney. He is there on your behalf. And tonight, the Christ of prophecy is appealing to you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to live in His kingdom forever and He cannot bear the thought of you not being there. And so more than anything else, He desires for you to choose Him to be on the winning side to be a part of His kingdom. And that urgent end time message in Revelation 14 says that there's nothing more important for our time. It's a strong, powerful message that is symbolized by these three angels flying in the midst of heaven. And here we see that God is giving that message to the whole world. He's giving it to you and me tonight. And so let's summarize this vital message. The message of the first angel is a call to accept the everlasting gospel. It is a call 
of loving obedience to Him. It is a call to give glory to Him in every area of our lives. That message is also a call to worship the Creator. An urgent call to live godly lives in the light of earth's final judgment. And so God's final appeal to mankind is an appeal of loyalty. It is an appeal of commitment. It is an appeal of obedience. And this urgent message of Revelation 14 reveals truth and exposes error. In the book of Revelation, Babylon represents this spiritual system of church and state where there is much confusion. There is error that has come into the church. And just like God confused the languages in Babylon, we see that there is confusion in His last day church. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you can see that there was a real literal place called Babylon. But what was real and literal in the Old Testament is now symbolic and spiritual in the New Testament. And so, this is not talking about the Babylon of old, but this is talking about an apostate church system that has allowed error to come into God's church. And so, in the end of time, God is calling His people back to true worship. He's calling them back to worship Him as the one true God, the Creator of heaven and earth. And the message of the second angel then of Revelation 14 announces that this man-made system of religion, this apostate system that has allowed error to creep in, this system that is teaching the doctrines of man rather than the commandments of God, This message says to us in Revelation 14, verse 8, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And here that word wine is symbolic of doctrine. And here we see that her doctrine is not the doctrine of the Bible, but it is the doctrine of man. It is the teaching of man rather than the commandments of God. And so here we see false doctrine coming into the church through this false religious system called Babylon. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming nights. But God is calling His people back to His Word. Back to the truth. Because friends, the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so the message of Revelation 14 leads God's people back to the truth at the end of time. God is leading us back to His Word today. And the central issue regarding the beast and the mark of the beast is the issue of worship. 
Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7 again says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. Here is a call to worship God as the Creator of heaven and earth, It is a call to true worship and the issue at the end of time is over worship. Revelation 14.9 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And so the angel's warning against receiving the mark of the beast is the most serious warning in all of the Bible. The message of Revelation 14 and these three angels conclude with a description to the whole universe of those who are faithful to God in the end. And notice what it says in verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints... Here are those who do what now? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So let's summarize. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, there is a call to true worship, to worship God as the Creator. In Revelation 14, verse 9, there is a warning against false worship. It tells us don't worship the beast. And then Revelation 14 verse 12 presents to us the true followers of God in the end. The issue is worship. And God is telling us that at the end of time, He is going to have a group of people who worship Him as the Creator and Lord and they keep all of His commandments. God's last day message warns us against the devil's deceptions in the last days. And so it's an appeal to surrender completely to God and to commit our lives to following His truth. And so what's God's desire for His end time people? That our hearts would be loyal to Him that we would be in willing obedience to Him. And so we have to come to Him and we have to ask Him to give us spiritual life. We have to come to Him and say, Lord, I'm laying it all on the altar. I'm giving it all to You. I'm asking You to come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior, to forgive me of my sins, to prepare me for the things that are coming upon the world. I want to live in obedience to You. I want to be so connected to You that Your power is working through me and I am living out Your commandments in my life. Kevin was a very handsome man. He had everything going for him, or so it seemed. He had a great job. He had a beautiful home, two beautiful girls, and a loving wife. But apparently, 
he missed the signs. Because he came home one day and he found a note on the table that told him that his wife had left him. She had cleaned out their bank account and taken the girls with her and they didn't want anything to do with him. And so Kevin was devastated. And no matter how he tried, he couldn't grasp all of this. He couldn't handle it. And so he tried to take his own life. He took a shotgun and put it to his face and he pulled the trigger. And miraculously, Kevin lived. And when he got out of the hospital, he decided that he needed to study the Bible. And as he did, he began to learn the depth of God's love. He began to see His mercy and His grace. And he fell in love with the Savior. And he began to change his life. He saw that Jesus had sacrificed His life for him. And now he decided that he wanted to give all of his life to Christ. He committed to God that he was going to spend the rest of his life sharing his testimony with all that he could and that he could bring them hope. That he could bring to their view a loving Savior who is desperately wanting each and every one of us to be saved. And friends, if we give our hearts to Him, we can have that assurance that God will save us just like Kevin has tonight. You see, on that cross, on a hill called Calvary and Golgotha, Jesus said, Father, take it all. Take every drop of My blood. I'm giving it all. And He is inviting us tonight to give our all to Him. The Christ who hung on the cross invites us to die to self and give our hearts to Him. To die to all of your selfish ambitions. To die to all of your pride and all of your lust and all of your habits to lay it all on the altar and give it all to Him. And He's asking us to do that tonight. Because you see, friends, the everlasting Gospel is going to the world. We already talked about what the everlasting Gospel is. It's the message of love that God has and His desire for you to love Him back. But here's the thing. This everlasting Gospel is going out to the world in the context of present truth. Now you might say, what is present truth? Well, let's ask that question of Noah. What do you think present truth was in his day? Noah was preaching the everlasting Gospel. He was preaching the love of God that God wanted each and every one of them to be saved. But the present truth was God is going to destroy this world. You need to get on the boat. That's 
the present truth. And then in the days of John the Baptist, present truth was the Savior of the world is coming. You need to repent of your sins and get right with Him so that He can share truths with you that you won't be able to understand otherwise. And now in earth's last moments, God is preaching the everlasting gospel to the world in the context of present truth. And the present truth is He's about to come back to this world and He is trying to get His people ready, but the devil is trying to deceive the world and to get as many as he can to disobey God's commandments. And so the present truth for us is we need to repent of our sins and we need to ask the Lord to come into our hearts and into our lives and give us the power to keep His commandments and to give it all to Him. And so tonight, friends, I want to make an appeal to you. But before we do, I want to show you one verse. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I want you to see this from the Word of God. That's going to be page 1370 of your seminar Bible. Friends, there is absolutely no reason for any of us to be lost. God is calling for each one of us to make a decision to give it all to Him. He is calling for a group of people that are different. A group of people that are going to stand out in the world. Because notice what it says In Titus chapter 2, look with me starting in verse 11. Paul says to Titus, he's saying to us, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's these last days that we find ourselves living in. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works." And so here we see that in these last days that Jesus Christ is looking for a group of people that are so in love with Him that they have laid it all on the altar. They have given it all to Him. They say to Him, Take it all. I'm giving it to you. And help me keep your commandments. Help me to follow you all the way to heaven. And he is looking for that group of people. And when he has a group that are so like him, the Bible tells he's going to come back and take us home. Friends, do you want to be a part of that group tonight? Do you want to be one of those that are so in love with Christ that you are willing to give up everything to be right with Him? If you are, He's calling you tonight. And if you feel that call, I want to ask you to stand up and come up here with me and let's take a stand for Jesus and let's say, yes, Lord, I want to be one of those that is among that group 
that special people that you are looking for in these last days. If that's you, please come. God is giving us the opportunity to make that decision tonight. Don't come because everybody else is coming. But if God is tugging on your heart and saying, yes, this is me. I want to come. I want to lay it all on the altar. I want to give my whole life to Him. I want to be included. Come, press together. I want to be a part of that group. If that's you, come on up here because we're going to pray I want to pray with you and I want to pray for you. Don't hesitate. If you sense God calling, come. Come on in close. Come closer. I'm not going to bite anybody. Come on. Come on in. I might spit on you, but I won't bite you. <laughs> I might. All right, let's pray. Oh, loving Father, you see everyone here. You know every heart. And Lord, You know whether we're giving You lip service or whether we are coming to You and we're saying, yes, Lord, I want to be a part of that group that Paul was talking to Titus about. I want to be that part of that group that looks so perfectly like You that You are going to come and take us home just like You did Enoch. And Lord, we are praying and asking that You will prepare us for Your coming. Help us to recognize the deceptions that are going on in the world right now as they are revealed to us. And Lord, our prayer is that You will help us to, in our lifestyle, live for You, to glorify You, to honor You. And Lord, that we would be so much like You that You would come and take us home. That's our desire, and that's our prayer, and we ask You to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.